Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Katie Brand and I am delighted to be joined by one of modern literature's leading writers. He's written nine novels, has been shortlisted for the Booker three times and his book Brooklyn was made into a feature film starring Saoirse Ronan. I'm delighted to be joined by Colm Tobin. Colm, welcome. Hi Katie, how are you? Thank you so much. You're here to talk about your new book, The House of Names. Uh, And according to the Penguin podcast tradition, you've brought along a number of objects that have influenced and inspired your creative process and we'll get to look at those shortly. But uh, first of all, your novels are often set in Enniscordi, Ireland, the place you grew up. Uh, But this time you've written a novel based on several Greek tragedies brought together into one narrative. Could you just give us for the listeners initially uh, just a very brief synopsis of the book and what led you to make that shift of focus? Well, the novel is really set in the house of Atreus and it is a version in some way or other of the story of the Oresteia so that the Trojan Wars are about to begin but I don't go into all that business of Helen of Troy. What, what simply happens instead is that Agamemnon appeals to the gods because the winds have to change for his ships to sail. And the gods, the oracle tells him that he must sacrifice his daughter Iphigenia. He then gets in touch with his wife, Clytemnestra, but he doesn't tell her why. He says, we found a husband for Iphigenia, Achilles the warrior, So if you come with Iphigenia for the wedding and bring our young son Orestes with you. And she's lured to the camp believing there's going to be a wedding and he doesn't have the courage to tell her. Then she finds out. And um, she does everything to stop the sacrifice. But it goes ahead. And what she determines to do is if he comes home victorious from those wars, that she will in turn murder him. And um, in turn, Electra, her daughter, decides she wants to kill her mother but has to wait until her brother Orestes, who's been away somewhere, we don't know where, and he must come back and he must do the deed. It's one of the great stories. Actors love performing it. You know, there are many different translations of it and many different versions of it. And mine includes a long section in the middle about Orestes when he was away, which has no source in any Greek material because no scholar knows where Orestes was when he was away. And that's a lovely opening for a novelist. As indeed... Sometimes having an actual text to follow is also very useful in a certain way. And you now join a long line, I mean, of going back several yeah. thousand years That's of people right, yeah, to yeah. reinterpret and, right. and add to the legend. That's right, yeah. In terms of the violence that is inherent in the plot that you have inherited and worked with, would it be fair to say that that isn't something, you know, that open violence is not something people usually associate with your previous work? Um, It's in the Testament of Mary and it's nowhere else. Right. So in other words, nine novels, two books of stories and it's nowhere to be found. And how did you Um, approach that? Well, I approached it in the same way as I approached... I remember I really hadn't written about sex much and I thought... How do you do this? And um, the way I thought about it was that you don't use metaphor. You don't use simile. You don't use flowery language. That you describe things exactly. But it's difficult because you do have to feel it. You can't write anything really without feeling it or having a sense of it. I know you're known as well for that kind of spare style, very direct. It's actually, I found, much more shocking than other accounts of violence I've read, which are more flowery. Yeah, I mean, I think, you see, if you write the blood ran scarlet down her neck, you really lose the reader. But if you ran the the blood spurted for a moment and then stopped while she lay back, you know, that you can actually 
do things exactly. That's it. Know. That's the precision. But the isn't blood it? ran scarlet won't work. It yes. means nothing. It's out of a ballad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's sort of dead language in a way. But it's the precision of language, isn't it? That the yeah, actually... yeah. You're trying to see. I mean, for example, when um, Clytemnestra sees that he has a knife, the first thing she tries to do is defend herself. I mean, she's she's absolutely ready to push him to see what can happen. And, and they're on steps leading down to a garden. So the whole idea is at what moment he then will, you know, A, make her fall over and then go down after her and do more and then, you know, and then and then. If you were about to genuinely do that yourself, those are the things you'd be thinking of. When's yeah. my moment? I don't want to mess it up. There's a sort of almost yeah. a vulnerability to it, to the perpetrator. If, if you start with that idea that this novel opens with a woman on her way to a wedding with her family... And by the end of the book, she's really quite monstrous in what she does. The author's job, or my job, is to build it slowly. In other words, it's not in any text, but what I wanted was to give her a rage. And what what he does is he orders her to be buried in a hole in the ground for three days with no food and no water. You then realise in those three days, she really was, was provoked into doing what she did. But you have to give the reader three or four pages of why did she decide that and how natural it was for her to make that decision. You would make that decision too, or at least I want the reader to feel that. And I certainly did, and I think any reader of this book will. But we have a clip here. It's Clytemnestra that begins the story, and we see things from her point of view. And there's a really powerful moment where she talks about her daughter's sacrifice and her own response to it. So let's hear that now. No one is willing now to repeat the words she spoke in the moments before they muffled her voice. But I know what those words were. I taught them to her. They were words I made up to shrivel her father and his followers with their foolish aims. They were words that announced what would happen to him and those around him once the news spread of how they dragged our daughter, the proud and beautiful Iphigenia, to that place, how they pulled her through the dust to sacrifice her so they might prevail in their war. In that last second, as she lived... I am told she screamed aloud so that her voice pierced the hearts of those who heard her. Her screams, as they murdered her, were replaced by silence and by scheming when Agamemnon, her father, returned, and I fooled him into thinking that I would not retaliate. That was House of Names by Colm Tobin, read there by Juliet Stevenson. Uh, And... We she just... sounds pretty good there, doesn't she? Yeah, she sounds great. You can't do much better than Juliet <laughs> oh Stevenson, God. I think. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just the most extraordinary opening pages of of the book, which I was I was on her side, sort of instantly, which is extraordinary given the history of the character and the story and what the the sort of received notion of it is. Is that something you very deliberately sought out to find? texts or or approaches that saw her in a more sympathetic light. Well, I suppose we're talking about one of the objects here. Yes. You know. so let's just say that uh, part of the format of the podcast is, is to, that you bring in objects to talk mm. about. So let's bring this in now because this version of Euripides, um, Iphigenia and Aulis, was yeah. obviously a big influence. Yeah, I mean, book. what happened was that I read it and it tells the story from Clytemnestra's perspective instead of the usual versions, which are from Electra's perspective. Now, this is a big change because... Electra's hatred for her mother is irrational. 
Freud was fascinated by it because it was that idea of a mother and a daughter at war over something so elemental that it wasn't as though peace could break out between them easily. But Clytemnestra's problem is that her hatred for her husband has a cause. He did behave treacherously towards her. She, she was forced to produce her daughter, Iphigenia, for sacrifice. I think it's been commented on about particularly the treatment of middle-aged women and mothers in, in literature generally, that anything from Disney to Shakespeare gets the rough end of the stick yeah, in many ways. Yeah, and Euripides, I think, saw this and was worried about it. But he also saw dramatically what could be done just simply by turning the perspective. That was a big shock for me. And once I saw it that way the whole novel came into place, or at least the opening section did. Yeah, yeah, it's 60, 66 pages. And, and the book is 260 pages, yeah. so, so that's pages a large chunk. 66 pages of her describing what happened to her. What I want you to do is to begin to feel for her, is to begin to feel, actually, I want her to be able to kill her husband when he returns. One of the things that I was thinking was, you know, if, if you have a partner and, and they do something you don't like, but you know they're going away for a while, you've got a long time yeah. to sit and think about it. There's no release for her until he no. comes back. And then the plan almost takes on an inevitability, a, a, a sort of life yeah. of its own. Yes, a sort of willfulness. Now, one of the problems then is, what are we going to do about the gods? Mm-hmm. These Greek texts and indeed Greek mythology and indeed Greek life were so filled with the idea that the gods govern so many things and the oracle. But the novel form itself is mainly a secular form. This is really from the 18th century, the, the idea that somehow or other humans under, I suppose as capitalism changed, became more ready to face choice and chance, to choose their own destiny, to work out things for themselves. It's very, very hard in a novel to have a character pray or to have a religious character. It's not impossible, it has been done. What I had to do really on page two, page two, was to get Clytemnestra and have her say, that God business... They care about us in the same way as we care about the leaves of a tree. We know they're there. We know they wither. They, they, you know, they change colour. But we don't care about each one. She has to say that for the novel to proceed. Otherwise, there can be no novel. So to that extent, it's not in any way a novel set in ancient Greece. I cannot tell you this is how, what ancient Greece was like. No, this is what a contemporary novel is like. But even Agamemnon, there's, there's, as he approaches her and, and realises she knows what's really going to happen to Iphigenia, even he seems slightly to equivocate about the role of the gods. And it's more about the mob and the army and the consequences of him not doing something. So that seemed to me to be even more shocking that he is going to sacrifice his daughter, not even necessarily to a, a religious belief that he is holding dear, but to the notion of the religious belief that is held by the mob. It's almost a populist move. Yes, he is weak and um, in power. So it's close to Gaddafi at the end of his career or Saddam at the end of his career. So I'm thinking about that idea of a man mm. who is aware of his own weakness, who's too weak to, to even to tell his wife the truth. And also there's that sense, I think, through the book that increases of the distance of the conflict. And there's one point, I think, where uh, a lady, the old lady says, you know, they're away, they're in the war. And I think Leander says, well, 
witch war. That, that, that there's a sense that 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 nobody's quite connected even to what the realities of what's yes, going um, on. I mean, what happens is that um, Orestes and his friend Leander and his friend Mitros they end up escaping from the place where they were kidnapped and they cross the landscape. And they arrive in this very magical place and they kill the dogs of this old lady and then they tell her, we will be your guards. And they stay with her for some years. There is a sense of them walking into a sort of timeless place and in which, yes, there's a war, but of course that war has no name yet. It's just over, you know, the Trojan War, but it's not called the Trojan War yet in the countryside. She's no name for it. But a very moving thing because her house is the eponymous house of names. Yes. Well, let's go to the part in the book where the owner of the house, the old woman, is dying and is reflecting on what's past. So let's have a listen to that now. One evening, the woman had repeated some phrases over and over and then some names before she stopped speaking and slept. They had almost finished their food when she woke again and began to whisper. At first, they could not easily hear her. It was a list of names. Orestes stood up and moved towards her. Can you say the names again? he asked. She did not pay any attention to him. Mitros, can you ask her to say the names again? Orestes asked. Mitros moved towards the woman and knelt in front of her. Can you hear me? he whispered. She stopped speaking and nodded. Can you say the names again? he asked. The names? Yes. This house was filled with names. Now there is only Mitros. And Orestes and Leander, Mitros said. They will go as the others went, she said. We will not go, Leander said in a louder voice. The woman shook her head. The houses were all filled with names, she said. All the names. This house was... She put her head down and did not say anything more. That was House of Names by my guest Colm Tobin and that extract from the audiobook was read by Charlie Anson. This is, I suppose, taken from John Millington Sings Riders to the Sea where the old woman Maura has lost all her sons now from the island um, as fishermen. And at the end of the play, she just names them. They were Seamus, they were Sean. She goes through each one, how each, how each was drowned. And it's, it's a sort of version of that without the names, mm. where she just says, this was a house of names. It's as though saying the names would be too much for her. Another key theme I, I noticed was the, the sort of the notion of the old woman uh, being a huge plot device. It happens several times, and the, the crone, to certain extent, yeah. and the, that Joseph Campbell hero's quest notion of that they're needing to be the crone that brings you into the forest. Or, yes, she's that... almost out of um, Irish mythology or other mythology. In Irish mythology, it would be the Kalyach, mm-hmm. the sort of witch figure or the... But, but in her case, it is as though she knows much more than she's saying. Mm. Um, and it is as though she has almost expected them to come. And it is as though she, she knows what each of them must do. So there is a sense of them moving into a fully mythological space you know, that Joseph Campbell certainly would recognise. 
out of their real brutal world. And uh, the another sort of older lady figure that is key uh, is the, the woman who weaves the robe that will paralyze Agamemnon. Um, and also her the, the the deal that she strikes. She seems strangely in charge of it, even though she has no choice. Yeah. I mean, I wanted bits of magic in the book mm. because I just felt, you know, don't just do the realism thing that everything has to be explained. She needs a net made. And there's a woman, there's an old woman left in a village who knows how to make that net. And I think we have that clip right oh, now. Oh, great. I ordered the poisonous crone we had captured to be brought to one of the windows high in the wall of the corridor outside the room where she was being held. I gave instructions that this malignant creature be hoisted up so that she could peer into the walled garden. I knew what she would see. She would see her own golden granddaughter, the light of her life. We had taken the child from the village. She, too, was our prisoner. I arranged for Aegisthus to tell the woman that if she wove the poison and if it worked, then she and her granddaughter would immediately be released and allowed home. I ordered him not to finish the next sentence, the one that began, If you do not but just to look at the woman with such clear intent and malice that she would tremble, or more likely make an effort not to show any sign of fear. Thus it was easy. The weaving took, I was told, a matter of minutes. Although Aegisthus sat with the woman as she worked, he could not find the new threads in the robe when she had finished. When it was done... She merely asked him to be kind to her granddaughter while she was here and to make sure, when they were being returned to the village, that no one saw them or knew who had accompanied them or where they had been. She gazed coldly at him, and he knew from her gaze that the task had been successfully completed and that the lovely, fatal magic would work on Agamemnon. It's quite exciting because it's the moment where, for me, it felt like Clytemnestra became a real political animal. Oh, yeah. And that yeah. I had in mind this phrase about politics of uh, if you can say it, don't write it. If you can grunt it, don't say it. <laughs> that you will never be accountable if you haven't said it, you just with a nod. And yeah, a... she was fooled the first time so badly. She feels so bad over that that now every single detail is going to be put in place. It's never going to happen again. Mm. And I think one of the one of the other things that comes over in the book and, and in your work generally actually is that leads us on to your next object, which is silence. Uh, but this sort of so notion of not saying things, the things that are unsaid and the way messages spread in whispers or in implication is actually more shocking than people just constantly telling each other things. The way Orestes is unable to quite get a proper answer about what's happened to his family while he's out in exile. Uh, and it also reminded me of what people talked about in terms of Al-Qaeda and also in the IRA in terms of their organisation, this thing that was called spaghetti structure, I think, where no one individually knew enough to be incriminated or to give it away, but it was all done in kind of half messages and whispers and unspoken things. And was that an interesting thing for you to spread menacing information but without really saying things? Yeah, the novel is filled with silences, with what's not known, that Clytemnestra 
spend some time in the camp where everyone around her knows that her daughter is going to be sacrificed and she does not. The reader knows. And then you go back to the idea that um, she, when she goes home, she does not tell Electra everything that happened. So the things Electra doesn't know. But Orestes is the main one. He really, really is, is, a, is a specialist in not knowing things. He doesn't know who killed his father. No one will tell him. You sort of almost want to reach out to Orestes and help him, I think, as a reader. And especially that, that relationship between mothers and sons. And as the mother of a son myself, you, the fragility of young men, of young boys, and the mother's instinct to want to protect them, even if, even if you know they need to grow into men without you. I found that very affecting throughout. And and this, oh, yeah. the removal yeah. of Orestes yeah. from his safety zone and all of that. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a book about a sad boy mm. who has been abandoned in various ways by various people. Yes, and we have a, a clip now of where Orestes has been kidnapped um, and there's an, a fascinating moment where he's getting a sense of what he's been told isn't true and that the situation he finds himself in is a lot worse than he could have imagined. So let's have a listen to that now. The guards had some food that they shared with Orestes, but still they did not speak. When he said that he wanted to go home, they both ignored him. And when he added that his mother would have sent out men to search for him, they also remained silent. When he stood up and asked for his sword back, they told him that he should go to sleep and everything would be fine in the morning. It was only when he remembered the kidnappings that he began to cry. Electra had spoken about the boys who were kidnapped, warning him to stay within the precincts of the palace. He had known some of the boys who had gone missing, now, it struck him, he was missing too. Maybe this was how the others had been kidnapped. Maybe they had been lured away like this. In the morning, the kinder guard came over to him and asked him if he was all right, sitting down and putting his arm around him. It's all going to be fine, he said. Your mother knows where you are. We're here to look after you. You said we were going to a feast, Orestes said. I want to go back now. As he started to cry again, the guard did not say anything. When he stood up and tried to run away from them, both guards handled him roughly and made him sit between them. Uh, and that moment where he says he's, he, he himself realises he's missing... It's, it's a really interesting choice of words because some writers, lesser writers, I think, would have said he realises he's lost. But to, to realise he's missing is for him, actually, to be empathising with the people he's gone from. The, 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 the sense of him is barely there, that his identity is fully underdeveloped and, and it never develops now. And so that is, you know, gives him a sort of innocence on one hand but it gives him also an ability to do anything on the other. He has no conscience then. I always think that's a really interesting facet, perhaps, of, of being an orphan. Not that he is orphaned at this point, mm. but he will be by his own hand eventually. But to have nothing there at all above you, and you are the generation at the top, and therefore you determine and define your own destiny without reference to an older generation... Is that something you wanted to put into his character as he developed, that he is charting his own destiny in a quite a sort of free way in some senses? It comes up in the books, despite me, 
Mm-hmm. I'd do every effort to keep it out. <laughs> the idea, the, this idea, what you've just said, you know, it's there in the very first novel called The South, where when she goes to England finally and has supper with her mother's friends, her mother's friends say to her, we never knew your mother actually had a daughter. Her mother has simply fled and left her as she in turn leaves her son. This is the first novel. This is so long ago now, it's almost like the 19th century. And then in book after book after book after book. And if I were a psychiatrist, I would say, well, this obviously is something that interests you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and is it something and, that interests and, you? And, and would the come, psychiatrist be right? To and, say and, that? you know, here it comes again. When I was eight, my father had a brain hemorrhage and needed brain surgery, you know, 1963 brain surgery. And so there was a long period of disruption and uncertainty when I was eight years old. It's funny, you know, despite the fact that um, that, that's 55 years ago, I'm living in its aftermath. I think we know now that this is is something common. This, This is not something rare. I mean, that children get marked. I think Hilary Mantel talked about at the same age, eight or nine, of being at the bottom of her garden and having this sudden notion of a sort of strange rising in consciousness or an awareness of something other or a bigger thing. Mm. Not not a spiritual Mm. um, epiphany, but just a sort of, I don't know, it's almost almost like Philip Pullman deals with with the notion of dust. It's like a moment of growing up almost, whether you like it or not. Yeah, but my thing then went on where... My father died when I was 12 and then when I was 15. And it was partly my own fault. I agreed to go to boarding school, but the going to boarding school was really a wrench because that was when everything came back as, as grief. You know, things that I had just normalised, internalised, made distant, came back in full. And, um, but I had to stay there. So all of that keeps coming back. Mm. And... Um, once I was in Oporto in Portugal and um, I met the writer Sue Townsend and without um, anything else, she just said to me, so what happened to you? And her idea was that, that um, as writers, we are people who, as children, either because of a vivid imagination or because of an, of an act or a thing that happened, something happened to stir the system that turned, in, in a way, turned sour in the self. Victoria Corin Mitchell did a documentary about P.L. Travers uh, writing Mary Poppins and her traumatic childhood and this sense of wanting to constantly rewrite the story but under her control so she could control the ending and she could give her father the ending that she wanted for him. And do you think that's an element in this You know, writer? I hadn't really thought of that and you're absolutely right that somehow or other um, losing control is the frightening part. And in, in writing, it's you're always, even though I'm saying, you know, things can happen in a book despite your best efforts. Nonetheless, you are in control of its structure. You do deliberately, willfully write the sentences. You can allow certain things to change. And that therefore gives you a sort of power that you don't have and obviously, as you're talking, I'm understanding that perhaps the concept of home was quite disruptive for you and perhaps became confused later with boarding school and things. And, and you said, which brings us on to your next object, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you've said that 
home is where your CD collection is. <laughs> is that true for you now? Um, yeah, I mean, it's just one way of describing home. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, you know at, at a certain age, I found opera and um, the big discovery um, was Bach's choral music, was, mm. were Bach's cantatas and St. Matthew's Passion and St. John's Passion. And especially the contralto parts, Kathleen Ferrier, when you, when you hear Kathleen Ferrier for the first time, it's an extraordinary contralto voice. And there was an Irish contralto called Bernadette Grevy. I thought she had a marvellous voice. Um, all of that has been very important, I suppose, in the creation of, of the voice of Clytemnestra in this book and of Electra and the sort of opposition between them. I will be working on the difference between a mezzo-soprano or a contralto and a soprano and thinking almost this is how those voices should be spoken or, or how they should be read. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see that now you say that, that's a really interesting yeah. insight into it. I, and you brought along this um, CD, uh, the operatic version of Iphigenia by Gluck. Was this something? Yeah, I would listen to it in the car. I would just simply put it on. I mean, I had followed it word by word. I mean, I knew what the story was, but... If I was driving, uh, often I drive from Dublin to Wexford. It takes an hour and a half and I can get, I can certainly get, you know, a CD and a bit in the journey. But I would have to look on all the time, hearing the voices, just just, just simply hearing the voices. Mm. So so that CD was quite important. It is an extraordinary, your book, House of Names, is, is it's an exploration of so many different stages of life, but also the role of of women in midlife, Clytemnestra and the lady in the house and the, the older woman who weaves the poisonous gown. I, I think, you know, Ianthe, Electra also entering into a yeah. middle age. But, but there's also Electra and her mother. There's, there, there's a scene where Electra suddenly realises that in order to give any power at all, she will need a husband and realises that there's somebody coming, you know, who has power, who has a sort of military power mm. and that if she could dress differently and get herself ready that she could attract him and that when she arrives into the room where other people are her mother just dismisses her who told you that you could have your hair like that who told you mm. you could have a dress like that and, and in a way I think that's what Freud was working with that Electra idea that the mother somehow needed to crush the daughter um, as a young woman that somehow she could not flower or flourish. Well, I think women's role in life remains precarious for our whole lives. We don't ever seem to reach uh, a secure summit. And so it's hard for older women. Uh, I mean, you see it in the media, the number of jobs available for women, the number of, you know, you you never reach a point where you're looking down on your kingdom and you can bestow generously favours. You're always shoring up and trying to protect your own position. Yes. Even when it comes to your daughter. I mean, you even notice it with um, the Prime Minister, Theresa May, that dreadful woman. I mean, in other words, no one spoke about John May like that and uh, uh, you know there, there is always that and certainly when you're when I'm trying to work the interaction between Clytemnestra and Electra I'm watching people who are searching for power who will do anything to find a moment where they can control things and Electra the only thing she can control in the end really is her brother and the ghosts that she deals with and just Finally, the, the, just to end on a sort of perhaps a note of hope to some extent, but there is 
there is a beautiful kind of, it's almost like a rest period for Orestes and Leander in the middle. And they share this love and the things they do in the nighttime together as they share a bed in the old lady's house. And it's a very peaceful period for them where you feel like they really are in some way in love. And is that something you wanted to deliberately put in, even though it ends so horribly for him, that he has he has known this real peaceful love for a short period of time? Yeah, I wanted to be careful because I read a book, or I tried to read a book called Homosexuality in Ancient Greece, but there seems so much of it. I thought, <laughs> oh my God, I have to, you know, do this. But I, but I wanted it to be sort of subtle in a way that often happens between teenage boys where um, one of them, genuinely doesn't care it's just you know he just like he's just having sex it doesn't really matter the other one is completely engaged involved and tenderly wants more and the two of them could go around together for six months until one just goes off with girls and does something much more important or joins the army or and the other one's left having remembering all his life this six months that was special <laughs> and uh, so I was trying to deal with that in some way the poor old Orestes you know, that, that Leander has many more fish to fry than merely being in love with poor old Orestes, who gets left out of everything, really. Yeah. It is, it's a beautiful pause, almost, in the violence. But, yeah, but at the very end of the book, there is a sense of the two of them there together. No one knows what will happen in the future. You know, they made their way outside and stood on the steps, taking in the dawn light, fuller now, more complete, as it always would be once the day began no matter who came and went, or who was born, or what was forgotten or remembered. In time, what had happened would haunt no one and belong to no one once they themselves had passed on into the darkness and into the abiding shadows. So, you know, that sense somehow that, uh, that time will in some how or other erase all of this mm. and it will be possible to move into another place. But I'm never sure about that. No, but it's a night, and especially given the world we're currently living in and grappling with, it seems a nice place to end uh, our talk because there is a sense of qualified hope, but hope nonetheless. Um, thank you very much, Colin Tobin, for uh, joining us today for the Penguin podcast to talk about your book, House of Names. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Falcon of Sparta by Con Igledon. At a juncture in their civil war, the Spartans are left with nothing. They become stranded behind enemy lines and their fate seems sealed. This is the story of Xenophon, the young Spartan soldier destined to lead the surviving troops of Sparta against the Persian king Artaxerxes and his unstoppable army. The truth was that some words could not be overheard. The king knew there were many listeners in his court. There were just too many small satraps, too many kingdoms whose crowns he had crushed beneath his sandals. Ninety rulers paid their spies to listen while a thousand courtiers jostled for position. The simple pleasure of walking alone with his son, as any shepherd might have done, had become a luxury as great as rubies, as valuable as the thick gold coin as they called archers that bore the likeness of King Darius across the empire. This is a story of courage and betrayal, strategy and war and is now available to download from Audible, iTunes and Kobo.